leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. detection is a critical means of improving outcomes for cancer patients. When cancer is detected at stage one, patients have a 90% chance of survival. By contrast, if cancer is diagnosed at stage four, patients have just a 5% of survival. The use of costly and invasive diagnostic approaches have been a barrier to early detection, but new technology has the potential to change that. Laboratory for Advanced Medicine is developing a simple blood-based test to detect cancer at its earliest stage. We spoke to Ken Shaheen, CEO of Laboratory for Advanced Medicine, about the company's blood-based test, how it works, and how it's prioritizing indications. Ken, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about liquid biopsies, your company laboratory for advanced medicine, and the ability of this technology to provide a a non-invasive means of early detection of cancer. Perhaps we can start with the need and the opportunity to change the way cancer is diagnosed today. How how is cancer typically diagnosed? Look, today we we don't have great tools that uh, that are, you know, really scalable, convenient, uh, and, and really inexpensive. And that's, that's really what we need. So today, I think, uh, you know, many of us are, are familiar with uh, a colonoscopy. So after the age of 45 or 50, um, we all have the pleasure of going in uh, and, and having a colonoscopy. That's essentially a two-day procedure. Uh, you're basically, you know, having some kind of, you know, sort of liquid diet and prep ahead of time. And then, uh, you have the colonoscopy. They usually give you some drugs that uh, sedate you, and then frequently they ask for someone to drive you home. So it's it's actually you know not uh, not trivial, not convenient, and and not particularly uh, you know uh, cheap. Uh, the other one is that everyone's familiar with is a mammogram, uh, and that's you know looking at just the the data from the CDC. Um, I think like thirty five percent of the people. Who are eligible for a colonoscopy don't take it, and, and mammograms are, are on the decline because women uh, really don't, uh, you know, don't like the, the procedure. So today, you know, those are the two common ones for things like liver cancer, pancreatic cancer. There's really nothing uh, today. There is no early detection. So this idea of being able to go to the doctor and getting a tube of blood and being able to, from that tube of blood to accurately determine whether you have not just cancer, but early stage cancer 
is completely revolutionary in a, in a paradigm shift that's going to, you know, real revolutionize cancer treatment. And, and the reason I say cancer treatment is because if you look at the data for almost, you know, the major cancers, your survival rate, if you get diagnosed at stage one, is, you know, 90% or higher. And for almost any cancer, if your diagnosis is in stage three or four, your survival rates are really dismal. And, and for many of them are literally in the low single digits. So, you know, this idea of being able to be screened with a simple blood test that's easy to comply, that's inexpensive, is really absolutely revolutionary. You talk about the test being inexpensive. Do we know what the cost would be? Well, I mean, look, I can tell you from from the standpoint of of of, uh, of Lamb, um, you know, we really see this as a mass market opportunity. I mean, this is not your typical diagnostic where uh, there's a subset of the population that would that would use it. Um, this is something that literally hundreds of millions of of people uh, are eligible to, to to take, and so we are thinking about this much more uh, from the standpoint of you know, can you get the cost of this test uh, and the scale of this test uh, to be uh, to be a lot cheaper? So I don't know that we have a, a price right now, but I, I certainly think that it's going to be, um, you know, very, very affordable for, for everyone. And that's, that continues to be our, our goal. There's been a lot of buzz around liquid biopsies for the past several years. What's the challenge they face in becoming a regular part of clinical practice? So I would say, you know, as we think about liquid biopsy, that's a pretty, uh, pretty broad term, and it, it's really uh, the definition of it is anything um, that that comes from you know, some kind of a bodily fluid. So it actually could be anything from saliva, urine, or blood. As we tend to to hear about it in the popular media, if you will, uh, today, liquid biopsy is really two different things. One is uh, you already have been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and what we want to now know is, is there a therapy, a particular therapy or targeted therapy uh, that is better for your type of cancer? And so that's one type of, of liquid biopsy. That's not what we're doing. Um, the other type of liquid biopsy is looking at, again, if you actually have cancer. Um, and the challenges, you know, I would say very broadly speaking have been two things. One, you know, can you detect tiny amounts of DNA that came from uh, a tumor cell uh, in your body, right? So that one is just, frankly, just a, almost like a limited detection, analytical uh, detection that you need. And I think with confidence now, we can say, yes, we can detect what you call either cell-free DNA or circulating tumor DNA in the blood. So I would say a lot of people can do that. We, we have that, that with confidence. The part that's really been a challenge is Sure, you have some cells from a tumor that have died, and some of that DNA is circulating in your blood. But you know, there's also a bunch of, um, you know, let's say it's using the liver cancer as an example. You probably have a bunch of liver cells that are healthy liver cells that also died that are leaving DNA in your blood, right? So the the challenge here is when we see this cell-free DNA, how do we know that DNA came from a tumor cell versus a normal cell? And that's really the challenge and and the the struggle everyone's having is what do you look at uh, and in the past we thought uh, for a while that you could look at um, the amount of uh, the mutations that uh, a certain cell had it turns out that that was 
you know, not sufficient to give you the sensitivity and specificity that you need for clinical practice. And so where the whole field has been moving now is something called methylation. And methylation, uh, without getting into the details, is basically a modification that occurs uh, to your DNA that is closely associated with what genes are being expressed in that cell. And it's turning out that methylation is a far, far better way of determining whether that piece of DNA that we're investigating uh, came from a tumor cell or not. And that's really what LAM has been focused on now for, for some time. I, I want to talk about the, the way the test works, but before we do, you joined the company at the end of last year. What attracted you to LAM? So, yeah, good, great question. So I, you know, was previously uh, general manager and uh, executive vice president at Ancestry. I joined there uh, about nine years ago to start Ancestry DNA. I was sort of, you know, employee number one, built that business up, uh, became incredibly uh, successful. And, uh, you know, we had touched the lives at Ancestry of, you know, five to six percent of the U.S. population. So for me, you know, I, I had I had launched DNA. We launched a very uh, good health product. Uh, we had put uh, the platform on an NGS platform. And so I was really looking for, for something else, right? And, and, and what I was looking for was something that was, you know, equally big or bigger from an impact standpoint um, that also had the challenges of scale and cost reduction because those are things that I really focus on at Ancestry. And when I looked around, I mean, the liquid biopsy for early cancer detection, it, again, I've said this a couple of times, but it really is going to revolutionize the way we think about uh, you know, cancer diagnosis. And so to me, the, the, the impact, uh, and the mission of the company, uh, the potential scale and the challenges of, of offering this, uh, at a low cost to me seemed like the perfect opportunity, uh, to leverage, at, uh, you know, leverage everything that I had learned at Ancestry. How does the test work? Take me from blood draw to result. It's a very typical, uh, blood draw. Um, it uh, gets collected in a, you know, same tube that we're all familiar with, a vacutainer tube. Um, you know, today um, it gets sent uh, to our lab, uh, and then at our lab, it's, uh, it doesn't look too different than other DNA tests. You extract uh, the DNA from the uh, from the plasma that you get. Um, you then do do you you then do one step, which is called the a bisulfite conversion, and then that step, it's just a sort of a precursor to be able to identify which parts of the DNA that we're interrogating have been methylated uh, or not methylated. And then you do a, uh, you basically do a sequence, and you can do that through either a PCR technique or, uh, or NGS. And then ultimately what you're looking for are pieces of the cell-free DNA uh, that have a higher percentage of methylation at certain sites that we have through a lot of large samples in AI determined are good predictors of whether that individual has cancer. And is this a CLIA lab model or are samples all sent to your lab? Yeah, it's a, it's a, CLIA, it's a very typical CLIA uh, lab model. So yeah, we have and, a, a CLIA lab that, that, that does all of it. And what is the result the doctor gets? Is it some clear yes so, or no? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's really two ways that, that, that you can look at it. In our clinical trial um, that we're doing with the FDA, it is a yes-no answer. 
Uh, however, uh, in our sort of laboratory developed test or LBT model, it is a quantitative test. Uh, and so you could envision, right, the test having you come in and you're like, oh, you know, Danny, you might be a little bit higher than normal. Come back in three months, six months, a year, right? And then track it over time. Um, but what we see is it, it's quantitative. And so um, ultimately, I find that to be a lot more helpful than a yes, no. Uh, and so that's what we've been sort of uh, giving physicians is sort of this sort of risk scale um, rather than a yes, no. And you, you say you're looking at methylation. So I, 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 as I understand it, methylation would prevent a, a gene from expressing as opposed to there being a mutation that you're looking for. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we're not looking at uh, we're not looking at mutations. We're looking at the methylation patterns and the methylation pattern, uh, as you correctly point out, we've known for a long time is really important in the expression of genes. So we know that they could either turn on or off genes. Uh, and again, we're, you know, to be honest, we're fairly agnostic um, as to uh, exactly what that methylation marker is doing from a biological standpoint. We're really looking at large amounts of data in AI and saying when we see this, uh, it is predictive of cancer, or when we see this, it's not predictive of cancer. Uh, and so we're we're kind of taking a little bit more of a again. Uh, 30,000 foot you know, AI machine learning type approach to understanding the algorithms that we use. This isn't a, a pan cancer test, but a, a test for very specific types of cancer. Your lead indication is liver cancer. Why liver cancer? So, to the first part of your question, correct. We, we do have some markers really predictive of cancer, period. Uh, there was a paper in Science Translational Medicine that was published January 1st of this year, which uses a what we call a pan-cancer marker. So it's not necessarily a pan-cancer test, but it's a pan-cancer marker. Uh, and that one, you know, really gave amazing results in a prospective study of 1,450 uh, patients um, that were undergoing a colonoscopy and took our test, and there was nearly 90% uh, sensitivity and specificity with the colonoscopy. Um, so we do have certain markers that are pan-cancer markers. We, you know, look, we believe that um, in the at least beginning stages of this, uh, the right way to do this is to have cancer-specific tests. So what we've done for the liver test is we have a few markers that are uh, specific of, you know, quote-unquote cancer, uh, and then we have other markers that are more specific to the liver specifically. And, and the, reason, um, the reason the liver was chosen first, and I, I was not here to take credit for it, but I really love the application, is that today uh, in the U.S., if you have chronic liver cirrhosis, your chances of developing uh, liver cancer are so high that the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease has put out a recommendation that every six months you should get an ultrasound. Uh, and the, the whole point of the ultrasound is to try to catch the cancer at stage one where your survival rates are, are high. Cancer happens to be one where you catch it at stage four, your survival rate is less than 2%. Um, and so you're in this surveillance mode. Um, the problem is if you've ever seen an ultrasound, uh, it's a great tool for certain things that are, you know, that you're looking for that are large in the body. They're not great for looking, the resolution's not great for looking at small lesions. So, for example, if you have a cancer that's only one or two centimeters 
uh, in size, which is how we define stage one cancer for liver, the ultrasound's not very good. So it only tends to catch, call it four in 10 of the cancers in stage one. Uh, and so our, our test catches uh, around 90% uh, of the cancers in stage one. And so a head to head with the ultrasound seemed, you know, like a really good, uh, like a really good first indication. And then the second thing is, you know, we have, you know, the companies here in the United States and in China, half of all liver cancers in China, unfortunately, due to the, the very uh, widespread uh, hepatitis B and hepatitis C, which also is a huge risk factor uh, for that population. So it made a lot of sense to, 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 you know, that's the second reason why it made a lot of sense for us to go after liver cancer. How are you prioritizing other indications you're pursuing? What's the thought process? You know, it's a great, great question. Um, there's a couple different things that we can look at. One, um, and, and it's not, you know, there's not one criteria, but it's uh, obviously um, getting a good proof of concept, which I think the liver is, but also a good market opportunity. And I would say it, it absolutely is, particularly China. Um, the other big indications that are frankly quite obvious, uh, to, be, to be honest, are things like colon cancer and breast cancer, just because it is, you know, such, it's basically an age-based risk factor. So those, uh, those just make a lot of sense um, in the U.S. because it's huge. And then the second thing, um, you know, frankly, the colonoscopy is pretty good, but the compliance is not awesome. And mammograms, you know, there's a lot of data coming out that mammograms um, are probably not as accurate as I think we once believed with, uh, or um, once believed that they're catching stage one and, and, and stage two cancers. Um, a lot of FDA uh, letters that have come out uh, saying that women should be warned that, that those with dense breasts, in particular, the mammogram is particularly uh, not effective. And so there's, real a need, there's a real need there for, for both of those indications. So those are two that are really big. And again, if you want to go back to, to China, those are not, you know, really the standard of care in China the way they are here. Uh, and so there's a huge opportunity to actually introduce uh, a test. And I can see, you know, countries like very much like a cell phone, potentially just moving into a blood-based uh, early detection and sort of just, you know, frankly skip some of the stuff that we're doing uh, today in the U.S. like colonoscopies and mammograms. So that's, so those are the other two. But there's clearly no end to, you know, sadly no end to the number of, of different tests that you can, you can come up with. Is there some expectation that you'll be able to get to a, a single test for all cancers, whether it's a multiple panel test or some other configuration? I think there's no doubt. I think if you if you look at a longer arc here of how this thing is going to play out, I would say that we're going to see uh, we're going to see that uh, you know a few tests are going to come out that are sort of specific, but 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 ultimately as we start getting a lot smarter and the analytics of the test get better and better, you know I would imagine that you know I don't know if it's 10 years or 15 years from now that, yes, there's going to be a single test and you're going to go to, uh, you know, to the doctor, you're going to get the blood draw and uh, you're going to determine whether you have cancer. And at that point, there, you know, there's probably going to be 10, 15, 20 cancers in that single, uh, in that single test. So yes, I, I think there's no question that that's the way this ultimately ends. I think the only challenge in the short term is that there isn't really any precedent for for that, and so I think it's going to be much harder uh, to get a pan cancer uh, test 
uh, approved. And also just, you know, statistically speaking, um, if you're just going to take all comers and understand whether they um, have cancer or not, you, you have to worry about false positives. Uh, and I think the false positives is going to be an issue. So I don't, you know, my own personal opinion is we're not quite there yet, but there's no question that this is how the story ends. It's a simple blood draw for, you know, cancer, period. Uh, and then the physician can go from there. You mentioned a, a clinical trial earlier. What does it take to validate this test? Yeah, so basically what you do is you, you, you get individuals uh, that have chronic liver cirrhosis. So this is a high-risk population. And then you, um, you know, in, in our particular trial, um, there are really two endpoints. One is using our test in addition to an ultrasound to improve the, uh, essentially the sensitivity, which is really the, the biggest thing here that we want to do. Because a person who gets uh, a positive on an ultrasound or would, have, would get a positive in our test automatically goes to uh, an MRI uh, as a confirmatory test. Uh, and so our endpoints are one in conjunction with an ultrasound and then head-to-head -head with an ultrasound. Uh, and then everyone who gets an ultrasound in our test automatically goes to an MRI. That is basically our truth uh, for whether someone has cancer or not. So that's how it's done. So it's relatively straightforward. Do you find payers want a different level of validation than regulators? Or are payers demanding something more than the FDA in terms of validating it? Uh, actually, um, not really. I mean, again, part of this has to do, even though we haven't, you know, um, nailed down a cost. I mean, we think that the cost of this thing is going to be, you know, at par, probably lower than the cost of an ultrasound. So just from that standpoint, I think that makes it very attractive. And, and look, it's just like everything else. If you look at outcomes, your outcomes, uh, if you catch someone with liver cancer, if we stay on that, on that track, um, much, much, much higher. You have the option of doing a resection or an ablation uh, of the tumor early on, which that opportunity is lost once you have multiple multiple lesions throughout the, the liver, and obviously if it, if it were to uh, metastasize. Um, and then from a cost standpoint, you know, we all know it's just a lot more expensive, right, to treat the later stage uh, cancer. The, some of the, the chemotherapy and immunotherapies that are out there are extremely expensive. So, yeah, I think the economic argument here is pretty straightforward, given where we are, uh, that that offering our test in lieu of an ultrasound um, catches more people early stage and actually improves outcomes and saves money. So, so far, we've had uh, really no pushback, and we're in the process right now of publishing some of the data that we um, that we've uh, that we've generated to validate the test. So, it's out there in peer-reviewed journals, et cetera, to support uh, uh, the reimbursement. There are a number of other companies out there pursuing liquid biopsies. Some of them have been able to raise a fair bit of capital through venture financings. How is LAMP financed, and where will its existing money take it? So, um, so yeah, look, I, one thing I would say is that this is a, you know, this is a very, very big market. And I, I joke that when I talk to investors, the one question I never get is, what's the TAM? What's the total available market? Everyone intuitively understands this is really a large market, so that's great. So it's natural that we're going to have multiple players in the space, and as it should be. It just shows that, that this is a, a great area to go after. Um, they have raised a, a fair amount of money. That also shows the, the, the promise that investors feel this technology has. We have raised about $120 million to date. Um, our founder, Dr. Shuli, 
um, who's very successful entrepreneur, has had multiple uh, multiple startups that have gone public and had other very uh, successful exits. Um, personally funded this at the very beginning, and then it's been mainly family offices uh, that have funded this up to this point. Um, and right now we're in the middle of a of a large fundraising round that's actually going quite well. And uh, and so our hope is basically to to do this next round. Uh, and and really where we're going is commercialization. So in China we have completed our uh, our enrollment for the uh, for the trial. Uh, we have to complete. Uh, testing of those samples and do the submission uh, to the uh, you know to the regulatory body there, um, and so a lot of it's going to be around salespeople and marketing, et cetera, in China, and then in the U.S. Similarly, right, it's a big it, the most of this money is really going to commercialization. A good chunk of it's going to go to continue to you know improve R and D and and build that up further, but a lot of it's really taking the company from this R and D stage to commercialization. How unique is the company's technology and? Does something make it more compelling than what competitors are doing? Yeah, good. So great question. So I, I would go back to you know again, Dr. Shu Lee, who is an angel investor in the in the uh, Irvine, uh, Southern California uh, area. Um, this methylation uh, technology caught his attention before it caught, frankly, anyone else's attention. Uh, he followed it. Uh, for a couple of years and ultimately felt that the time was right to uh, license the technology. So we have a very large patent portfolio that was exclusively licensed from UCSD, which is where a lot of the data uh, originated. So one thing that makes us unique, speaking as a patent attorney, is that we have a very robust uh, and, and large patent portfolio of methylation markers specifically that we've identified that are important in certain cancers. And so that's important. Um, and then the other, you know, the other advantage is that we really are in the two largest markets. And so uh, some of the work that's done uh, in China really helps accelerate uh, our R&D and development. So the way the company functions is a lot of the R&D uh, that's done in China obviously stays in China, but we can actually do a lot of the basic research and AI there. Uh, and then some of the, then everything gets independently, you know, patients and and studies get done in the U.S. to validate uh, to validate it in this population, different ethnicities, et cetera. Uh, and so that's been a huge advantage as well because I think it gives us an advantage of speed uh, that I think, uh, and, and, and frankly, cost, right, that, that in the U.S., uh, you know, our competitors don't have. How do you expect the test to be used initially? Is it going to be used for someone suspected of having a specific type of cancer? You know, I think for for liver cancer, if we stay on that on that on that theme, it will definitely be a high risk population. So I, you know, this is not a test for all comers. This would be for someone who has uh, either hepatitis or has chronic liver cirrhosis due to alcoholism or something else. Uh, could be, you know, secondary to hemochromatosis or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's the way it's going to get used. You know, look, physicians uh, uh, are going to want to. Um, probably use it in conjunction with their ultrasound for some time, get confidence, and then eventually I think it'll just displace uh, the ultrasound. And, and obviously, two of our hepatology board members are on the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, and so obviously they'll be watching that carefully, and ultimately we want our test to be in the guidelines, right, as opposed to recommending an ultrasound as recommending our test. So I think that's, that's the evolution uh, that's likely to, to roll out the way I look at it. And ultimately, what will it take to make this part of a routine physical? 
Yeah, so so again, our, our initial test, to be honest, is going to be on the high-risk population. I think the colon and the breast is also going to be in a high-risk population, and that's going to be either someone who has a family health history or other history of colon cancer at an early stage or uh, someone just, again, uh, uh, over 45 or 50 uh, is going to be the population. Um, and uh, look, I think it's going to be rapidly adopted, and I think the only the only thing that's uh, that's a question here is, you know, when there's confidence that the analytics uh, equal what's out there today, uh, and once that happens, I, I see absolutely no question that this is going to be rapidly adopted, and it makes me think of sort of the the neonatal. Uh, or uh, non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPT, right? I mean, I was literally talking to someone the other day, young kid, he's like 30, I'm like, he's going to have a kid. And I'm like, wow, aren't you glad you don't have to do an amniocentesis, you know, as part of the pregnancy? He's like, what's that? Like, no idea what it even is, right? That the concept that someone would actually have a needle be stuck in their, you know, stomach to assess whether, you know, um, the child had Down syndrome or whatever uh, doesn't even exist. And this, this new generation doesn't even know what the old test was. I think it's going to be like that. I think our kids are going to say, let me get this straight. You guys used to have to go to the doctor and have a colonoscopy just as a routine. I think it's going to look just as silly as, as you know, for them, uh, uh, you know, on that. That's, that's, that's what it's going to be. It's like, a, it's like going to be like an IPT. Ken Shaheen, CEO of Laboratory for Advanced Medicine. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.